Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through this very early epistle from the Apostle Paul to a church he planted in the northern area of Greece, the city of Thessalonica. I'm going to be preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Endless Love. Endless Love. Now, most of you are probably familiar with that song. It's actually Amy and I, one of our favorite songs to sing together when we have the opportunity to do karaoke. Not because it's just the quintessential love song duet, because we actually have two hearts, two hearts that beat as one. Our lives have just begun. (laughs) Now, I think as we go through the text today, you'll see why on Valentine's Day of all days, I've entitled this message, Endless love. Let me ask you a question. Have there ever been experiences in your life where you have been falsely accused? Where things have been said about you behind your back that were just not true or were half-truths or were misrepresentations or distortions of something you did or something you said? I've had the unfortunate occasion on a few times to be in a courtroom environment, where, whether it was a child-parent-custody case or a divorce hearing where an attorney for one party is doing all they can to tear up and to malign the other party. Uh, Attorneys are known for telling half-truths, right, and twisting the truth, which is why there's so many lawyer jokes. I'm going to resist the temptation to give some lawyer jokes right now. Well, the same type of thing was really happening to the Apostle Paul in the city of Thessalonica. There were some detractors. There were some agitators who came into the church, the small little community and fellowship of faith that Paul planted and Paul instructed, who were saying things about him, who were making some false allegations that just were not true. In chapter 2 of his letter to the church, he really begins to defend himself and to remind those there of what the characteristic of his ministry was like while he was there with them. And we can kind of read between the lines of Paul's defense in chapter 2 to kind of ascertain what some of the accusations and false statements were. They were criticizing him and saying, he's a fraud, he's a charlatan, just like so many other philosophers and religious speakers who come into town, hawk their wares, get what they can from you, and then they're gone in the middle of the night. He's only in it for the money. He's only in it for whatever popularity or prestige or prominence he can get from you. He's just a medicine man, here for a brief time, takes advantage of you, bilking you, and then he's gone. So because this kind of talk was going on, he starts the chapter by, again, reminding them what the character of his ministry was like among them. He was not selfish, he was sacrificial. His ministry among them was not motivated by this personal greed. No, rather, a profound sense of giving. He didn't try to just mooch off those believers. No, he worked and he labored among them. And he said, you remember this. Now, in the last section of the chapter we're going to be looking at today, he actually answers some criticisms that are leveled about his ministry, saying he really has no concern for you. He has no affection for you, no love for you. And they say the evidence that he doesn't really love you, the evidence that he has no concern for you, is the fact that he skipped out of town. He's left you. He's like so many other men. They tell you what they think you want to hear so they can get what they want, and then he gone, 
He's, he's done. So these are the accusations. He's willfully and dispassionately deserted you. So the four verses at the end of chapter 2 really are Paul's response to this kind of accusation and this kind of criticism. So let's look at our focal text uh, beginning at verse 17 to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, just by way of reminder, I want to draw your attention back to the historical record of the planting of this church in the city of Thessalonica. Luke, who was a co-laborer with Paul, so it's his first-hand account, writes the book of Acts, and in chapter 17, he records just what went down, in brief summary, uh, with Paul and his missionary team there. Look again at Acts 17 on the screen. The Bible says this, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, that's Paul and his team, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So it seems what happens here is that Paul, because of this mob that is formed against him and the missionary team, they go into hiding. And so they can't find Paul, they can't find Silas, they can't find Timothy or Luke, and so instead they grab one of these new converts, presumably the home where this early church was meeting, the home of Jason. They grab Jason and some of the other brothers and they drag them before the city authorities and make these accusations against them. And so the text says that Jason and the others put forward a pledge, a surety, money. But what were they pledging? We are pledging, presumably, that Paul won't stir up any more trouble in the city. Here's money as a pledge. So those who were saying, Paul doesn't care about you, Paul's not concerned with you, friends, they didn't know the whole story. He was compelled by Jason and the other brothers, because they put a pledge of money that they weren't going to cause any more issues, to leave town and go to Berea. And Paul's writing these verses to let them know, I do love you. I do care for you. I am passionate and of great affection for you. I have for you, literally, an endless love. One of the commentators I read every week as I'm studying and preparing is William Hendrickson, and he describes our focal text in this way. Notice what he says. At this point, Paul's style becomes intensely emotional. The very words seem to tremble. Paul is in these short verses piling on word after word, emotion after emotion. And I want us to consider three ways in which we see the Apostle Paul's endless love for the church. First one is this. I want us to consider the source of his love. 
the source of his love. And the source, the foundation of Paul's affection for them is really found in one little word in verse 17. Look at verse 17, the beginning. But since we were torn away from you, brothers. I want you to circle that word brothers on your outline or in your Bible. He could have equally said brothers and sisters. It's brethren. It's those who are believers in Christ there in that church. It's a statement of their relationship they have for one another. It's a very real, spiritual, familial relationship they have together. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that Paul reminds them of the source, the foundation, the root of their affection and love for each other, that it is, in fact, familial in a relationship? Well, if you look at his second letter to the church, we can see even further the connection here. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes to them again, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first roots to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the true. Well, what's the source of Paul's affection for them? They have been loved by God the Son, they have been chosen by God the Father, and they are being sanctified and, and sanctified by God the Spirit. And this truth is evidenced by the very fact they believe the gospel. They have placed their faith in the truth of Jesus. They trust in and rely upon him. So Paul's saying this, listen, we are inextricably linked together. We are connected together. We are family. The Apostle John describes the relationships that believers have together in similar words in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And these great truths of the gospel that this church had believed, that Christ had died for them and been resurrected from the dead to provide new life, that they have trusted in, it created among them deep and abiding ties. In fact, Paul begins this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Back in chapter 1, we studied in week 2, in verse 4, he says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He, right at the beginning, refers to them in this familial term. We're brothers. You're loved by God. He has chosen you. Now, I want to take time this morning just to focus in on the source of this affection because we need to recognize, too, as believers in Jesus Christ, friends, our relationships together are not superficial. Our relationship together, those in this room right now, they're not trivial. They're profound. They're deep. They're real. It is an endless love. Why? Because God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And God has set us apart, and he is keeping us into all eternity future. What this means, friends, is our connectedness together is much deeper than something so trivial as voting for the same political candidate or party. Our connectedness together is much deeper than something so superficial as what SEC football team we pull for, right? Our connectedness is much deeper than having the same taste in music or having an affinity for the same restaurants. Our connectedness goes much deeper than that. We read it together at the beginning of our worship service. Ephesians chapter 2 describes our connectedness. The Bible says, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we also walked, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were all, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But verse 4 of chapter 2, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, by grace you have been saved, you have been rescued, and you have been raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. This is the connectedness we have together, church. So much deeper than the superficial things of this world. We are seated with Christ in heaven, raised with Him. This is what binds us together. And friends, this is why, with all the things going on in the world, none of them have a place in the church. Those things which bring about division and disunity and discord and disharmony, they have no place in Christ's family. Tom Rayner is a former seminary professor and dean of evangelism at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest. He was also, for about a decade, the president of Lifeway Christian Resources. He's retired from that position, and he now continues to write and consult churches uh, through his ministry. I read his blog and his articles regularly, and one of his recent articles, the headline caught my attention. Here's what it said. Six reasons your pastor is about to quit. I read that headline and said, well, I need to read this to find out why I'm about to quit. <laughs> Thankfully, none of those six reasons applied to me here in this church. But in this article, they were all circled around the pandemic and church's responses to the pandemic. Here's some of the things he said. Pastors are about to quit because of increased infighting in the church. Because of criticisms leveled against him that are at an all-time high because of an increased workload, because of fear and worry about church finances, because of waning attendance. In fact, Monday of this week, just six days ago, a pastor friend of mine from down in Georgia who texts me about every two or three weeks just to check in and see what we're doing and how we're doing it as a church he often wants to find out, okay, how are you opening back up? How are you bringing back small groups? How are you doing children's ministry? How are you doing this and that? He texted me, and here's what he said to me in his text on Monday. He said, here's what's crazy. The country is divided over politics. The church is divided over this virus. A couple months ago, a young woman chewed me out in the foyer over the restrictions we take to prevent the virus. Then just two weeks ago, a nurse walked up to me and said, if anyone in this church gets sick and, sick and dies, it's on you. She was upset because some people were taking off their masks in the worship service, even though we have people separated. It's a no-win situation. Let me tell you again, I thank the Lord for His grace in this church. And we've not experienced that type of conflict. Yes, we all have our opinions, but, opinions, but we have things that tie us together that are much deeper than responses to a virus we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son we are rescued we are family members we are brothers and sisters and forever we will be together in the lord paul says here's the source of my love for you we're brothers and sisters we're family members but secondly, I want you to see not only the source of his love, but number two, the force of his love. In this short passage, 
Again, Paul uses some of the most emotionally charged and impassionate language in all 66 books of the Bible, and he uses it to describe his love for them. I want you to see the force of his love in three unique ways. First of all, in the pain of separation. He describes for them the pain of separation. Paul picks out a word from the Greek language to describe his pain. It's only used here in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. Look at it again. He says, but since we were torn away from you, those two words in English translate a single Greek word. I have it on the screen, ap orphan idzo. You see an English word in that Greek word? Orphan, right? He says, here's the depth of pain I have for being separated from you, from being torn away from you. I've been orphaned. We sometimes encounter situations, either personally or in the news, where we see experiences of children being orphaned. Sometimes it's after a tragic accident or the parents are killed and all of a sudden you have a child or children orphaned. Or we've seen uh, accounts in other regions of the world where because of war or genocide, children and parents are separated tragically. Or sometimes because of the acts or decisions of mom or dad, they're incarcerated, they're put in prison, and obviously the children can't go with them, and so they're separated. In our world, we're all too familiar with households that experience neglect and abuse on behalf of the parents, and family and children's services are left with no result or nothing to do except to separate that child and place the child in a safer, more wholesome environment. Regardless of the situation, they're all painful. Why? Because we know the best thing for a child is to be with his or her parents, (laughs) to be a family. Paul began talking about the source of his love. We're family. And now he says, I've been torn away from you. We're orphanized. We're separated. This is an appropriate way for him to talk and describe the separation because if you let your eyes scan up to verse 7, he says, my love for you was like that of a nursing mother with her infant. You look down at verse 11 and he says, my love for you is like an encouraging father who's talking to you and giving you life. And so he says, we're being torn away from you. This is the pain of the separation we had. We were orphanized. But secondly, we see his pain and his love in the pursuit of reunion. His pursuit of their reunion. Notice again verse 17. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I love Wendy's hamburgers. I normally order the single with bacon, the Baconator. Occasionally, I'll get a double stack. But there has been a few times when I was really hungry, I went ahead and got the triple stack Baconator. (laughs) Now, I can just feel my arteries clogging looking at that thing, right? Here's what Paul does here. It's a triple stack Baconator with cheese of emotion. He just piles and piles and piles it on. Look again. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. He starts out with this this word endeavored. It means an intense, uh, fervent, excessive pursuit. And then he says more eagerly. Another word that just adds on to it. More eagerly literally means with haste. You hurry up to do it. And then finally, he says, with great desire. This is the word epithemia, from, which has the root word thumos, which is heat in Greek. 
This is a passion, a heated passion. We want to get with you. Now, what's the deal with this triple stack of cheese and bacon and meat of emotional language? He's wanting them to know just how much he wants to get back together with him. Why? What's the last phrase of that, that section? To see you face to face. I want to see your face. The first time ever I saw your face. I can't feel my face. when I don't even know what that song means. Sorry. Yeah. He's, I want to see your face, right? What does it mean to see someone's face? It's to come into intimacy, right? That's why in Exodus 33, when Moses says, God, I want to see your glory, God responds, you can not see my face. You see my face, you die. In the Bible, the face is this intimate relationship. When I've had the occasion to correct my children and now my grandchildren, one of the thing I do, things I do when I correct them is I say, hey, look right here. Look at my face. Why? Because I want them to see how I'm expressing what I'm saying and I want to see how they're responding to what I'm saying. I think Apple is absolutely genius in the way they develop and market their technology. And that includes the fact that they've named their video conferencing, their video calling app, FaceTime, right? We know how critical FaceTime is. I mean, it's one thing to text, it's another thing to email, even to call on the phone, but there's nothing quite like FaceTime. And Paul says, I endeavored all the more eagerly and with great desire to see your face. I want to be there. This is strong, compelling, passionate, fervent desire. Here's the third thing I want us to see about the force of his love, and I want you to see the prevention from Satan. The prevention from Satan. Why didn't he go to them? Well, he describes exactly why in verse 18. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered him from going to see them in Thessalonica. Now, we don't know exactly what that means and what he's exactly referring to. You must realize the Apostle Paul had tremendous discernment. He could understand and he could see things and recognize the source of what's happening. In Acts chapter 16, he desired to go to Asia to preach the gospel. but The Bible says the Holy Spirit forbid him to go. How did he know it was the Holy Spirit? Well, he has a tremendous gift of discernment. And here he says he is hindered by Satan. And we know today, Satan is still working, right? He is still working and he is still functioning. He is still seeking to hinder. But we are not ignorant of his devices. We are not uh, misled by his methods. We know how he functions. How does he function? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's one who is a tempter, who tempts believers to walk away from the Lord. Jesus described him as the one who comes and snatches the word away after it's been sown into the lives of people. He harasses God's people. He harassed Job in the book of Job. He's an accuser of the brethren, so that sometimes equates to undue guilt and condemnation in our own lives. He shakes and he sifts believers like he did Peter. He devours like a roaring lion. The great reformer Martin Luther described our foe 
in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he said this, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And friend, Satan directs almost all of his attack towards the church. Why would he attack an unbeliever? <laughs> He's got him. He attacks the church. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus gives very stern warnings to the churches that are gathered there in Asia Minor. To the church in Thyatira, he warns of the teachings of Satan that have infiltrated the church. To the church in, in Philadelphia, he says, there's a synagogue of Satan among you. Satan and his minions direct their attack against the church, but primarily against church leaders. Which is why when Paul tells Timothy, here are the qualifications for anyone who would be a pastor. Here's the qualifications for overseers, for elders. Notice what he says in 1 Timothy 3. He, the pastor, elder, overseer, must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and what? Fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Friends, Satan is attacking the church, and his minions are particularly directed against Christian leaders, which is why just this week we saw a stomach-turning report of a major Christian leader in America involved in hideous sex scandal. Why? Satan, the evil one, he goes after the leaders of the church. He, he told, Jesus told Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. He didn't tell Peter, I've told Satan, hands off. No, he said, I've prayed for you, Peter. You're going to be sifted like wheat. The Apostle Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had a, a satanic attack. Notice what he says there. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's been all kinds of theories about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Was it his eyesight? Was it, was it other some physical ailment or malady? But he says right here in the text what it was. Angelos Satanas, an angel of Satan. That's a demon. He was demonically oppressed. And he said to the Lord three times, can you get rid of this demon? And three times the Lord said, no. What do I have thought about this? I often think, well, why didn't Paul just say, I bind thee, Satan. Get away from me. And I figured out why. He didn't have TV preachers to watch to figure out how to do that. He couldn't. God has Satan on a leash, but sometimes he lets that leash out and Satan is allowed in the providence of God to attack his people. For Paul, it was so that he would be refined, so that he would not become puffed up and proud. And here in Thessalonians, he says, Satan hindered me from coming to you. That word hindered, it's a military word in Greek. It referred to a tactic that one army would do when it was being pursued by another army. It would dig a trench 
across a thoroughfare that would be traveled to prevent that army from coming and attacking them. And he says here, this is what Satan did. He dug a trench. He put forth a, an encumbrance so that I could not come to you. See, Paul knew his battle was not with flesh and blood. Paul knew he was in a spiritual warfare and the enemy dug this trench to prevent him from going to the church in Thessalonica. Now here, we need to be clear. God is over Satan. God is sovereign over Satan. Sometimes, as I said, he allows Satan's leash to be let out a little. For instance, the Bible says Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus Christ. Why did God let the leash out for Judas to be entered by Satan to betray Jesus? So you could be saved? So that Christ would be put on trial? So that he would go to the cross? So that he would die a criminal's death in your place, taking for you the punishment for your own sin and be killed, buried, and resurrected to provide new life? Why did God allow Satan to enter Judas? Because he loves you that much. Paul had this endless Love for these believers that he'd poured his life into. And this endless love is seen not only in the source of his love that's rooted in the very saving grace of God, in the force of his love that just pulsates from these verses, but finally I want you to see the course of his love. And this really gets to the crux of my title, Endless Love, because the course of Paul's love for them travels right on into eternity. Look again at verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the, our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul returns here in these two verses to a concept he already introduced at the end of chapter 1. Namely, the parousia, that's the Greek word, the coming, the return of the Lord. He brings it up again at the end of chapter 3. He really goes into detail at the end of chapter 4 and into the beginning of chapter 5. Listen, all five chapters of the book of 1 Thessalon Thessalonians mention the return of Jesus Christ. When we get to 2 Thessalonians, Lord willing, in the fall, he comes back to this theme again of the coming of Jesus. Now, it's fascinating to consider this aspect of the coming of Jesus that he references here in chapter 2. He says, at the coming of Jesus, these Thessalonian believers will be for him our hope or joy or crown. Often, when the Bible talks about the coming of Jesus in our judgment before Jesus at that time as believers at the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, it's used in reference and with language surrounding athletics, athletic competition. It's what a crown is. But we understand this. If a team wins a Super Bowl, there's a ceremony at the end of the Super Bowl where they award them the Lombardi Trophy. I don't know if that's happened recently or not, but we know that is a ceremony that takes place. Now, in Paul's day, they didn't award trophies to the winners. They awarded crowns, these wreaths. Paul says, what is the reward I'm looking forward to? What is the crown? What's the trophy of grace I anticipate when Jesus returns? It's you. <laughs> you are the crown, the reward I'm looking forward to. As he's able to hear report from Timothy of these believers' maturity, their growth, their steadfastness in the faith, in spite of great hostility and persecution, he says, 
I know not only were you saved by the grace of God, but you are being securely kept by that same grace of God. And when he returns, you're going to be a trophy of grace. You're going to be crown of reward. That's Paul's love for them. This endless love that goes right on into eternity. As we close today, I wonder, we've been talking about love and affection, care and concern this morning. What drives your affections? What moves you to love? There are many things clamoring for our affection and crying for our attention in this world, aren't there? How do we refocus? How do we recenter our affection and our love on what really matters? On what lasts instead of the fleeting pleasures of this life? Well, I'll let Paul tell us in Colossians chapter 3, and with this I'll close. He said, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul breaks down these theological truths in these short four verses, these ironclad promises. We're raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ. Our old life has died. We're hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is coming back. He's returning. And when He appears, we will also be with Him in glory. And He says, think on these things. Friends, the battle for victory as a Christian in your life is in the mind. What are you thinking on? Think on these things. Ponder them. Contemplate them. Chew on them, on these realities. Keep repeating them to your heart and to your soul. Remind your mind of these truths. That's why, friends, every single week we come together here to do just that. Because Monday through Saturday, there are all kinds of things being thrown your way that are being told to you, this is important. This is of ultimate reality. This really should have your attention and your affection. They're not. These are the ironclad truths of which we need to think and ponder. In just a moment, we're going to sing the Crowder song, Come As You Are, and truer words couldn't be spoken or sung. If you need to return to an affection for the Lord that you had, the first love, this is the time to do it. Come as you are. You might want to come to these steps and just bring your need to the Lord or maybe where you are, you can grab a friend to pray with you. I'll even be here. I'll pray with you. Mask on. <laughs> so that we can come to the Lord and say, God, I want to reaffirm my love for you, my affection for you and for your people. And that leads to my last thought. Our love for one another focuses us on what matters and fuels our hope for the future. Why? Because there is 